Hello everyone. Welcome to Policy Beyond Politics, the podcast series hosted by Center for Public Policy Research, Kochi. In today's episode of Policy Beyond Politics, we bring to you the deliberations from our webinar, Indo-Pacific Strategy, Reimagining the Maritime Outlook. This is the second in a series of four webinars hosted by CPPR with the support of the United States Consulate General Chennai as part of our project on US-India relations, change, continuity and transformation. The first one on the US-India partnership on climate change was held earlier in June. An episode of the same is available on our podcast channel. It is my distinct pleasure now to introduce our speakers. We have two of the best minds in the field with us today to discuss the US-India Indo-Pacific partnership. Dr. Rajeshwari Pillai Rajgopalan and Mr. Gregory Bollier. Dr. Rajeshwari uh, is the director for the Center for Security, Strategy and Technology, CSST, at the Observer Research Foundation, New Delhi. She was a technical advisor to the United Nations Group of Governmental Experts on the Preventions of Arms Race in Outer Space. And she was also a non-resident Indo-Pacific Fellow at the Perth US Asia Center in 2020. As a senior Asia defense writer for The Diplomat, she writes a weekly column on Asian strategic issues. She joined ORF after a five-year stint at the National Security, Security Council Secretariat, the NSES, of the Government of India, where she was an assistant director. I welcome you, ma'am. Gregory Pauling is a senior fellow for Southeast Asia and a director of the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative at CSIS. He oversees research on U.S. foreign policy in the Asia-Pacific with a particular focus on, maritime, on the maritime domain and the countries of Southeast Asia. His research interests include the South China Sea disputes, democratization in Southeast Asia, and Asian multilateralism. Mr. Pauling's writings have been featured in Foreign Affairs, The Wall Street Journal, Nikkei Asian Review, and Foreign Policy, among others. A warm welcome to you both. This discussion will be moderated by Dr. Lawrence Prabhakar Williams. Lawrence, sir, as we call him, is an author, researcher, and professor for international relations and strategic studies, formerly working in the Department of Political Science of Madras Christian University, Christian College, I'm sorry. His research fellowships have been at IDSS and RSIS Nanyang Technological University, Singapore, the Fulbright Fellowship at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, Political Research Fellowships at the Henry Stimson Center and the Center for Naval Analysis, USA. The, among, among that, there are various uh, other positions that he has held of importance. He is also a senior advisor with CPPR. I welcome you, sir, and I hand over the proceedings to you. Uh, thank you, Purvaja, for this uh... Warm words of welcome. I thank the Lord God for this opportunity to moderate this session. And uh, this is an important topic uh, which uh, CPPR and uh, the US Consulate have taken for today's evening discussion there. Let me just add a few points which I will set the tone for the two panelists who will, uh, who will both speak for 10 minutes each. And then uh, we will come with the uh, subsequent uh, interventions and, and then followed by the session there. Indo-US relations 
which basically has a very strong strategic security convergence ever since 1992, if you like the proposals which accentuated the Indo-US partnership very much in the maritime domain there. And this has been based on, on what we could call the Malabar series of exercises that has come a very long way. And today we find that the bilateral relationship has flourished into what we could call a quadrilateral security initiative with the addition of Japan and Australia into this relationship there. So when we look into the, uh, the vistas of the Indo-Pacific, the vistas of the Indo-Pacific is not only with regard to the Quad, but the centrality of the Quad itself is based upon the bedrock of the US-India uh, naval uh, as well as maritime relationship that has gone a very long way there. Secondly, there has been economic transactionalism that has gone between the two countries in the, in the learning trade that has gone between India and the United States. Of that trade going through the Pacific, and India has played a very important role in terms of, of, of keeping the sea lanes open in the Indian Ocean region there. Uh, ever since the war against terror had started from 2001, India had played what we would call uh, an informal net security provider in terms of how this shipping has gone throughout the region there. India has also benefited, India and the United States have also benefited from technology transfers that has, that has buttressed India's military capacity and also in terms of the platforms that India has been able to acquire, particularly in the naval domain. Trade interdependence is one important aspect that is again uh, basically maritime oriented. And we find that this has been a very important constituent by which the India-US uh, relations have flourished into it. What we expect in the Indo-Pacific region is a rules-based order, which will, which will provide not only a confluence of the Indian and Pacific Oceans, but it will also be a, an order which will basically look in terms of peace and tranquility. And the most important thing is that confluence of democracies coming together. The Indo-Pacific region would remain to be free there. Having said this, I will not take much time, but I would uh, like to invite Dr. Raji Rajagopalan and Mr. Gregory Pauling to make the remarks, and then we will set the discussion on to. Thank you, uh, Dr. Raji Rajagopalan. Thank you, Lawrence, uh, and uh, good morning, good evening, depending on the time zone where you're joining us from. As Purvaja mentioned, the idea of the Indo-Pacific is not new. In fact, in one of the earlier articulations in recent times, uh, came from the Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe when he spoke of the confluence of the two seas in the, parliament, in the Indian Parliament in 2007. Further, of course, in 2013, the first official recognition came in the Australian Defence White Paper, identifying the Indo-Pacific as a new theatre. In 2018, the US indicated its preference for the Indo-Pacific terminology in its national security strategy and renamed the US Pacific Command to the Indo-Pacific Indo Command. In 2019, ASEAN, France, and other countries came out with their documents indicating their visions of the Indo-Pacific. But over the last year, many other European countries too have articulated their Indo-Pacific strategies. But the Indo-Pacific strategy came out as a, as a framework for a couple of different reasons. One, as a way to include India as a partner with a leadership role because the Asia-Pacific did not really include India. The second reason is, of course, to bring out the strategic maritime spaces of the Pacific and Indian Ocean as one strategic entity. The Indo-Pacific region is a significant one and a vast maritime space with the interest of many maritime players converging, be it India, Japan, France, then the United States, as well as several medium and smaller powers like Australia and Indonesia. 
While a number of traditional maritime security issues challenge the Indo-Pacific waters, today's uncertainty comes primarily from China's expansionist agenda, as well as related questions such as the U.S. commitment and willingness to play a role, leadership role in the region. The fact that the region does not have an overarching security institution binding the entire region in addressing that challenge poses additional questions. The current competition and rivalry are also a function of the Asian and global power transition and the changing balance of power dynamics. With the rise of China, the return of a more normal nation in Japan, and the reemergence of Russia, the Indo-Pacific ha region has become the theater of the great power competition. As for India, it has tried to bring the maritime attention through some of the recent policy initiatives. India, for one, has articulated its idea of a free and open Indo-Pacific. It has also given maritime security a major focus through initiatives like the Indo-Pacific Oceans Initiative, which is a reiteration of India's commitment towards a free, open and inclusive Indo-Pacific region based on a rules-based order. Prime Minister Modi, while announcing this initiative, said the objectives of the IPOI are to ensure the safety, security and stability of the maritime domain. The new initiative enlarges the focus on the strategic maritime space in the Indo-Pacific and is also a clear indicator of India's willingness to address China's maritime aggressiveness in an emphatic manner. The proposal has been welcomed by many in the ASEAN region and other Indo-Pacific powers also have entertained this idea. Explaining the agenda of the new initiative, the MEA said this would involve creating partnerships across among interested parties in several pillars ranging from enhancing maritime security to preserving and sustainably using marine resources, building capacity, disaster prevention and management, as well as working together in trade and maritime transport. However, and despite these pronouncements, India continues to lack a coherent Indo-Pacific strategy. India has taken, of course, certain administrative policy steps in furthering the importance of maritime security and the Indo-Pacific in the overall strategic architecture. For instance, in April 2019, India set up an Indo-Pacific division within the Ministry of External Affairs, meant to integrate under one Indo-Pacific umbrella, the Indian Ocean Rim Association, IORA, the ASEAN region, and the quadrilateral of the Quad countries. In September 2020, an Oceana division was created in the MEA in September 20, again to streamline some of the efforts concerning the maritime spaces. These are important because these are the maritime space. This is, this is a maritime space where China has been particularly proactive to maintain a dominant standing and India is also seeking to assert its own role. A second major issue to me is the absence of a clear focus even when we talk about maritime security. So what are we talking about when we talk about the Indo-Pacific maritime issues? Uh, when we engage on a number of issues such as um, uh, HADR, the Humanitarian Assistance Disaster Res uh, Response, environmental issues, blue economy, humanitarian issues, and anti-piracy, and so on and so forth. I'm not trying to underscore the importance of these issues, but this is more for public consumption. And the real challenge for India and the Indo-Pacific region is China's military power. But there are differences in terms of how the major Indo-Pacific powers look at this China focus as well. For instance, uh, to a large extent, uh, the US, Japan, Australia, and even New Zealand, for instance, the, uh, the, uh, the focus continues to be uh, China's efforts in South China Sea and the Pacific Ocean. But for India, rightly so, the focus is on the Indian Ocean. So there are questions about how do you coordinate and kind of bring about a better convergence uh, of the two sets of issues, even as it pertains to uh, China. 
India has traditionally played a significant maritime leadership role, but since its independence, due to a variety of reasons, continental issues gained greater salience in its national security thinking and therefore has abandoned the naval and maritime aspects in its overall thinking as well. But the rise of China and its ag aggressive military and political behavior in the Western Pacific and increasingly into the Indian Ocean has prompted many countries to look at India as a balancing factor. There is expectation among these countries that India plays a major role in ensuring a secure, secure maritime environment and effectively deter China and restrain China in its expansive activities in the region. Therefore, the Indo-Pacific framework provides India with enormous opportunities to partner with like-minded countries uh, and major stakeholders in the region. As of today, India's threat primarily comes from uh, India's threat from China primarily comes from land borders, but this is going to change in the next ten years for sure. China's growing Indian Ocean presence is not just about contesting India's uh, strategic role in the IOR Indian Ocean region, but it's also a part of a determined agenda to emerge as a key player in the Indian Ocean region, which feeds into China's larger objective of becoming a global maritime power. The PLA Navy's growing strength means that it is shaping up to be a formidable force to be to reckon with. This is complemented by China's growing maritime military ties with a number of countries in the IOR region. IOR and increasing naval presence in the region. India has concerns, has multiple concerns about China and the Indian Ocean. One already alive is China's activities uh, in India's Indian exclusive economic zone. Even though the Indian Navy has been able to deal with it, these problems as of now, the scenario will be significantly different within the next 10 years. It is not clear that India is thinking through these issues in a focused manner and acting on them. India has been long wary of power plays in the Indian Ocean, but today it finds itself with few options but to participate in securing a free and open Indo-Pacific. Clearly, there are other political problems also in India's um, uh, articulation of this further. In terms of its strategy for maritime security, it's very, still very unclear. We have a sea control strategy, but we might need to move to sea denial. Again, are, we, are the political leadership and the defense leadership thinking along those lines and acting on them? Also, the inter-service rivalry and the maritime capacity developments are serious issues when it comes to India playing a, a proactive role in this regard. Since the Dalman conflict, uh, India is once again likely to have a continental focus and ignore the maritime capacity capability requirements. The step-sisterly approach towards the Indian Navy reflected in the small budget that continues to be an issue. The capacity issue, therefore, is a significant one. Even though the Indian Navy is still the, uh, is, uh, the fifth largest in the world, it has been found lacking on many fronts. A few numbers, the size of its shipbuilding capacity, industry, the port handling facilities, connectivity, and the size of its merchant fleet would reveal the shortcomings in materializing an effective maritime strategy for India. Failing, uh, falling submarine numbers is another important indicator in this regard. India has around uh, 15 conventional submarines in operation, many of which require uh, immediate re replacement as they're already obsolete. The Navy being capital intensive, it also spends far more on its budget on capital expenditure as compared to the other two services. But the falling budget as a proportion of the Indian defense budget has not been helpful. Given this capacity constraint, which India recognizes, and the increasingly aggressive Chinese presence in the Indian Ocean, the Modi government has altered its approaches to Indian Ocean as well. In early 2015, Modi in a speech in Mauritius and Seychelles talked about cooperation with external partner powers in the Indian Ocean, uh, including countries like the United States, Australia, Japan, France, and others, 
and countries that have partnered with India in conducting security dialogues, military exercises, and exchanges. This change approach is possibly an Indian acknowledgement of the fact that India faces serious capacity constraints in managing the Indian Ocean by itself there, especially considering the prospect of China becoming a major player there. In this regard, it's also important to note the logistical agreements that India has concluded with a number of countries, including the US, Japan, France, and Australia. And these to a large extent extends also India's maritime outreach and strengthens the overall maritime security cooperation. To sum it up, I think I would say New Delhi is likely to continue to engage in large regional meetings and summits, but it's also probably likely to step up engagement at bilateral and quadrilateral and trilateral levels, any number of minilaterals. In fact, a thicket of overlapping partnership with like-minded partners is a better bet than following just single track partnership with uh, any one set of countries and so on and so forth. In order to develop the concrete ideas on the Indo-Pacific Oceans Initiative, India's efforts cannot be limited to a normative exercise alone. Strategic partnership with the other key countries, in fact, especially the financially more capable countries, uh, such as Japan and others, might become cr critical in the coming years. I'll be stop there and I'll be happy to take on any questions. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Raji, uh, for this uh, succinct presentation. I now invite Mr. Gregory Pauling to make his remarks, please. Hey, Dr. Lawrence, um, and, and thank you to CPPR and the, the U.S. Consulate for inviting me. It's, it's a real pleasure. I, I think that my remarks will be largely um, complementary to what we just heard from Dr. Raji. So I, I'd like to focus on three areas where I think growing uh, India-U.S. collaboration on maritime security is key. Um, one of those is direct security cooperation, enhancing deterrence at sea. One is on diplomatic and normative efforts. And the other, which connects to both, is on maritime domain awareness capacity building, and particularly the support we are providing jointly to small island developing states and, and littoral states around the region. Um, so on, on the first, uh, this has been very well covered. I mean, everybody sees the press reports about growing U.S.-India uh, bilateral, trilateral, and quadrilateral cooperation, the growth of Malabar, uh, increasing weapons sales, all of the various access and logistics agreements we've signed. And I think we should not um, we should all appreciate how far the relationship has really come. I mean, over the last 25 years, it really has been remarkable, remarkable progress given where we started. Um, you know, things like the sale of P8s early this year to India, which are, are still underway. The fact that we had the first ever uh, U.S. military aircraft refuel uh, at Port Blair just uh, at the end of last year. I and mean, th these were, I think, really unthinkable steps and, and signs of strategic trust uh, 10 years ago. And that is being facilitated also by the growth of India's network of security cooperation with other American partners, which is increasingly tying India into kind of a, a like-minded club when it comes to, to this. So you have the India-French uh, naval cooperation growing in the Indian Ocean. We had the first joint exercise out of Réunion between the Indian Navy and the French Navy. We have India now having access to Changi Naval Base in Singapore, where the US and UK and Japan will also operate. India has signed logistics agreements and access agreements with Australia, with Japan, with uh, ROK. I mean, really tying itself into the network of uh, like-minded rule-supporting states in the Indo-Pacific. And all of that amplifies the bilateral defense cooperation at sea that we're seeing between Washington and Delhi. Um, that is all, I think, critical to deterrence, uh, particularly vis-a-vis -vis China, which Dr. Raji talked about. But 
I think everybody can agree that deterrence is not an end in itself. Uh, ultimately, our shared goal has to be to incentivize Beijing toward better behavior, to convince the Chinese to change the way they behave in the Indian Ocean, in the South China Sea, um, you know, on the, the shared border, the land border with India, on all of these fronts in which China is increasingly under Xi Jinping, proving itself to be a revisionist state threatening the, the rules and norms that we've all come to accept. And there, the long-term solution is not military. Um, it is diplomatic and economic cost imposition, uh, convincing Beijing that its goals of being a global leader are better served by acting within the system than without. And so when we look at efforts like uh, increasing Indian support for freedom of the seas and the increasingly close, uh, well, the, the parallels that we see between language that you hear from, for instance, Secretary Blinken and Minister Jaishankar, what we're hearing is a growing chorus that extends well beyond Delhi and Washington of like-minded states saying that we support a certain definition of the rules, particularly at sea, and that Beijing's behavior, be it in the South China Sea or anywhere else, is seen as a threat to the entire global community. Uh, and I think that's increasingly valuable. That's one of the places where I think growing collaboration through the Quad is going to be most valuable because it presents a diplomatic platform in which uh, U.S., Japanese, Australian, and Indian leaders can all show that they are of one mind on key issues, not on everything, but certainly on key issues. And we'll have to see what comes out, uh, hopefully, in the fall with the in-person leader summit and the results of, of the uh, Maritime Security Working Group. It's one of the three working groups under the Quad. But I think we'll, we will see that rhetorical, that normative effort from Dell and Washington increasingly converge. And one of the places I hope that we see that is over the next couple of years, a more explicit uh, statement from Delhi in support of the 2016 arbitration award in the South China Sea, in which we've heard, I mean, really since the immediate aftermath of the award, we've had Indian cabinet officials very strongly hinting that China should abide by the award, saying things like, well, you know, when we were, when, when India was taken to court by Bangladesh, we followed through with our arbitration. This is how great power should behave. Moving from that to a more explicit China should follow the uh, follow on close and follow the results of the arbitration where I think that would be quite valuable because that amplifies the message coming from the other now nine states uh, who, who are calling for that explicit uh, 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 Chinese uh, abiding by, by the ruling, mostly because when the US, Japan, um, Australia, Iraq, Canada, etc., when they all complain about Chinese bad behavior, it's very easy for Beijing to brush that off and say this is just a case of U.S. containment, the U.S. rallying its allies in support of whatever issue. When India joins that chorus, China can't make that same argument because everybody knows that India is not an ally of the United States. And so if India amplifies the messages coming from the U.S. alliance network, it makes them much more than the sum of their parts. It creates a much greater uh, weight behind those complaints, and it provides cover for other non-aligned states to do the same, to step out and say, we actually also disagree with Chinese behavior. We've just been unwilling to say it when it looked like it was part of U.S. containment policy. Both of these, the, the direct security cooperation between the U.S. and India on maritime security and the normative alignment on how we talk about the rules-based order between the seas, I think they are both facilitated by what's probably the most direct area of cooperation right now, which is the growth of maritime domain awareness and capacity building that both states are providing to the region. So directly, we're seeing more and more focus on information sharing, data sharing, 
India is using, making use of, of the Sea Vision platform developed by the U.S. Department of Transportation and the Navy, taking part in more frequent uh, U.S.-led, Japanese-led, ASEAN-led maritime domain awareness, maritime security dialogues. We're developing a shared set of definitions, rules, norms, behaviors for how all of us are monitoring the maritime domain. Um, and at the same time, we're seeing India engaging in the Indian Ocean region supporting the maritime domain awareness capacities of smaller states in the same way that the US and Japan are in Southeast Asia and the Pacific Islands. So India is now funding uh, radar and other support for the Maldives, Mauritius, Seychelles, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, tying all of those radar networks back to the Navy's Indian Ocean Fusion Center in Delhi, and then providing that data back to the partner nations. The US is doing similar efforts in Southeast Asia through the Maritime Security Initiative, and what we are approaching is a point at which the US, India, and both of our partners throughout the region are getting closer and closer to a persistent maritime domain awareness capability um, fueled mostly by low cost remote sensing, satellite technology, and cheap radar that will allow us to, uh, I mean, provide public goods, search and rescue, counter IU fishing, anti-piracy, but also to keep an eye on bad behavior from China and others. Enabling smaller states, you know, to document what happens in their own EECs and come to realize just how much illegal and illicit behavior is occurring in those areas and therefore amplify the message that we are putting out, that China is uh, threatening fundamental rules of freedom of the seas. We have to do all three of these things at once, right? We do have to strengthen short-term returns. We do have to invest in long-term diplomatic cost imposition on Beijing. And in the interim, we have to make sure that our smaller partners are capable of monitoring their own waters in the same way that we can, and of talking about the bad behavior they see in the same way that we do. And all three of those converge, I think, in ways that are very important. Um, the last thing I'd like to address very quickly is when we talk about uh, the threats that we face at sea. Um, as Dr. Raji said, there's often a bit of a disconnect. We, we agree on the principles. We disagree often on the focus. And I think in, in interactions I have with Indian counterparts, there is clearly, you know, we all care about Chinese activity in the Indian Ocean. We all care about Chinese activity in the South China Sea. We care which one of those is the primary theater is where we disagree. And one of the things that I think we can recognize, that's not, we're not going to erase that, that disagreement because India's national interests are what they are. But Chinese threats, Chinese claims in the South China Sea run counter to international law in a way that no other state's maritime claims do anywhere on Earth. And if China's claims in the South China Sea are accepted de facto by China's smaller neighbors, it will lead to an unraveling of key components of international maritime law that both the US and India and all of our partners spent more than two decades negotiating. It will undermine India's national security interests and threaten freedom of the seas globally. And so while, while I don't think we should expect India to play a direct role in the South China Sea in the way that the US, Australia, and Japan do, it is increasingly clear that India's own interests are at stake in making sure that other states don't succumb to Chinese pressure in the South China Sea. Because you cannot ensure freedom of the seas in one place if you abandon it in others. And I will wrap up. Thank you, Mr. Poling, for your, for your remarks. That has been uh, comprehensive as well as analytical. 
So now we will have the discussion open up. Thank you both for your uh, remarks that you made on the on the reimagining of the situation there. So I would like to basically put forth uh, a couple of questions to both of you so that uh, this interaction can go on more than me speaking uh, at this point. First and foremost, both of you, uh, what do you think will be the uh, revisited uh, uh, strategic vision of India and the United States uh, in the years to come, the next two years or next five years to come there? Uh, given the fact that the PLN Navy's uh, uh, expansion program is all full swing, and uh, well, what do you think will be the, the, the US and India uh, positions on this? Having said that, I would also like to have another point here. Uh, the United States rebalancing to the Indo-Pacific has been in progress there. Uh, and uh, do you think that this will provide the conclusive balance of China uh, both in the uh, South China Sea and the East China Sea and the Western Pacific. And what would also be India's complementary <coughs> postures to, to come in the coming years? That's my question. I think uh, either of you could answer that. Very broad, I think, contested discussion. So I don't, I don't want to claim that I have, have all the answers here. I think increasingly U.S. and Indian strategic interests and threat perceptions are aligning in ways that they never were before. Um, and that is going to drive, I think, greater uh, collaboration on, on arm cells, development, joint exercises. Eventually, I would imagine joint maritime patrols in ways that were really impossible due to the lack of strategic trust even 10 years ago. China is a great leveler here. I mean, not just India, you're seeing it. The Vietnam relationship, you're seeing it all over the region, right? Um, when when we all share the same anxieties about another rising power, suddenly our own disagreements seem much smaller by comparison. Uh, I expect that we will see greater U.S.-Indian collaboration on joint training and joint exercises with third parties outside the Indian Ocean in the years to come. Vietnam is a clear example where you are seeing, um, you know, India is the foremost non-Russian security partner of Vietnam, precisely because India is the only other major party that uh, can provide training, parts, and equipment co-produced with the Russians, which is what the Vietnamese have. And so there's clear uh, ways to amplify efforts there that it wouldn't make sense for the U.S. to, to engage in. Um, I think that a big part of this, as I indicated in my, my remarks, will be increased maritime domain awareness. I think both India and the U.S. have an interest in getting us to a place in the next 10 years where we are capable of monitoring all Chinese activity anywhere on the oceans all the time. Um, and that is being driven by the revolution in access to low Earth orbit, both the both NASA and commercial entities here, as well as, as uh, Indian uh, commercial and, and uh, government uh, players are moving us toward a point at which every vessel on earth made of metal over five meters is trackable. And it will be up to us to be able to make sure that we know how to use that and can provide that to our partners so that Chinese bad behavior can't hide um, under a basket. One area that I think I'll just flag that I think we should both be talking about more um, that we haven't so far is what Chinese access to third parties in Southeast Asia, and particularly Cambodia, mean for Indian maritime security. Um, 
there's been a lot of folks in the U.S. about China's uh, impending naval access to Riem Naval Base in Cambodia and its air access to Darussakor Air Base in Cambodia. But when you draw out the range rings, what you quickly discover is that Riem and Darussakor don't get China any closer to U.S. facilities or to Singapore or to the Straits of Malacca than China's bases already do in the South China Sea. The only thing that Riem and Darussakor get China is the ability to harass the Thais and the Vietnamese a little bit more, but it also gives China the ability to monitor through over-the-horizon radar China, uh, Indian activity around the Andaman and Nicobar Islands and in the Andaman Sea. And so we should have a much more clear discussion with India about what we think China is likely to use its growing access to the Gulf of Thailand for, and I think it'll be pointed at India as much, if not more, than it'll be pointed toward U.S. and its allies. Thanks, uh, uh, Lawrence. And of course, I uh, agree a lot with uh, what Greg has already uh, said. I, just a couple of things I wanted to add to that. One is, of course, the uh, India and US, I think, seriously. And India, US, and not just restricted to the two, but other Indo-Pacific powers also need to think about what, what they can do together to strengthen the capacity building exercise for uh, smaller Indo-Pacific powers, because in terms of whether it is in terms of training or in terms of providing equipments and platforms, what they require, we are not talking about high tech, but at the same time, providing what these countries require for enhancing their maritime security capacities. I think that is something we need to think about. Uh, they have, uh, this has not been particularly part of our conversations in terms of providing support to third countries and strengthening their overall capacity building exercises. So I think that's something that is need to happen in a sense. The other point uh, I, I think um, I touched upon it, but again, I've been thinking about it for quite some time is the monitoring of the Indo-Pacific maritime spaces, uh, how that coordination can happen among the Quad countries or even with the involvement of other major in, uh, maritime powers. Um, so, uh, because every country, and I think that requires whether among the key Indo-Pacific powers or the Quad countries need to have a lot more uh, consultations and coordination kind of mechanisms built in there so that every single country doesn't have to be involved in every major theater in a sense. So Japanese keep track of a particular section of the maritime spaces and once the Chinese uh, uh, um, vessels leave, uh, then somebody else's responsibility, uh, somebody else take charge and monitors the Chinese, where their ships, where are they going and so on and so forth. So that kind of a coordination so that you have a real-time picture of the Chinese naval movements uh, in the Indo Pacific maritime spaces. And I think the, this is something that we need to be doing. Uh, and okay, we, the Quad or even the major Indo-Pacific powers have not reached that level of uh, coordination and uh, sophistication in that sense yet. But I think the more number of political dialogues and security consultations happen, I would think this is something that is a natural uh, next step uh, for the Quad countries and others, other major Indo-Pacific powers to, have, uh, to do it, to engage in. And I think that's a, that's going to be very, very useful, especially as we um, sort of uh, and over the next few years, this will become much more intense. And I think this is something that we need to uh, keep up with in terms of uh, watching out for uh, what the maritime space is. Uh, aside from the uh, strategic security perspectives, what do India and the United States envisage in terms of public goods at sea in the Indo-Pacific? Because I think public goods at sea is a very vital aspect uh, in the age of what we could call this global commons. And in the age of uh, transnational events, uh, challenges and disasters, what will be the public goods that India and the United States will bring into the Indo-Pacific? I would like to have both of your opinions. I think uh, 
both Dr. Roddy and I have, have, have alluded to this, a big component of this is increasing the ability of our partners and kind of the global ability to monitor the oceans. Whether we do it because we're worried about China um, or whether we do it because we're worried about piracy or, or maritime crime or IU fishing, ultimately it all comes together in the same way. Right? The, the first goal toward monitoring any threat, trans, uh, uh, traditional or non-traditional at sea is maritime domain awareness. And the biggest hurdle in places like the Southern Indian Ocean, the Pacific Islands, is the lack of maritime domain awareness capabilities by small island states. We are in a position to help address that. And if we can get to a point at which uh, all of the ocean is effectively monitored 24 hours a day, then we get to a point at which IAU fishing and piracy and trafficking are no longer productive commercial activities. Um, the fact that it also helps us monitor Chinese bad behavior will be a great bonus, but you can do both at once. And the former is a public good that's less uh, provocative, less sensitive for our various partners and allies to get on board with. Yeah. Yeah, let me just add to that. Uh, uh, of course, uh, I think uh, Greg has clearly made the point. Uh, in terms of strengthening the capability of our partners and uh, the ability to come together, uh, interoperability, and those are the kind of things that will add to the uh, sort of strengthening the public goods in the, in the maritime spaces. Uh, for that, uh, I think a number of in India, for instance, traditionally shied away from uh, engaging in smaller exclusive groups and so on and so forth. But I think India is also now getting a lot more comfortable, uh, especially over the last few years. Um, the China threat has become uh, a lot more intense, a lot more precarious, the kind of uh, scenarios that India possibly plays out, uh, whether it is in the Indian Ocean or elsewhere, uh, it is becoming a lot more serious. And therefore, India's own willingness to partner with like-minded countries in, and I think uh, the US is the key, most key, uh, key player out there. But I think India is also now, uh, India, along with other US allies as well, they recognize the need to also forge uh, closer security partnerships within Asia, for instance, the larger Indo-Pacific region. Uh, whether it is uh, US, uh, US, uh, India, US, uh, India, US, Japan triangle, or you have the India, US, Japan, Australia, the Quad, but also the Asia, uh, Asian triangles, for instance, uh, Australia, Japan, India are, uh, are an important uh, uh, sort of a conversation that happens there. So I think there are many more uh, these kind of minilaterals and uh, such kind of formulations that will come about in order to strengthen the overall um, sort of a marit uh, maritime partnerships um, to secure uh, the maritime security order, the freedom of the seas, the ability to move freely, the open seas and freedom of uh, uh, freedom of navigation. I think those are the important aspects that will continue. The other traditional issues, the uh, piracy and kind of thing that have figured prominently for quite some time, but I think the uh, it is becoming more, uh, I think the kind of issues like the HADR uh, and uh, such kind of issues are becoming more prominent. Piracy has gone to the back burner in some sense uh, within the uh, within the Indo-Pacific stream. Uh, it is more in terms of the HADR is an important live issue for the but I think overall, I think the interoperability that, that is gained through a lot more such engagements uh, will go a long way in strengthening the, our, uh, our ability to respond to any situation in the, in the, in the maritime domain. And I think that's, uh, that's the overall gain that I, I see from such engagements. What convergences do you see uh, in the US G7 initiative of build back better worlds uh, to be in the Indo-Pacific and what would be the specs in which India and United States would converge uh, in such an initiative uh, 
to bolster what we could call as infrastructure connectivity in the infrastructure. The infrastructure and connectivity and uh, both in terms of the physical infrastructure and connectivity as well as the digital connectivity, this, these are areas that uh, ha should be prominent uh, in the, in the Indo-Pacific context, the dialogues among the major Indo-Pacific powers. Uh, these have not been really, because whatever has been done so far in terms of the uh, allocation for infrastructure development has not been sufficient to counter or anywhere match up to the kind of uh, uh, the investment that China has made through the Belt and Road Initiative and so on and so forth. And these are areas uh, that we need to invest in because many countries in the region, in the Indo-Pacific, are looking to do a pushback on China, but without an alternative, uh, without uh, an, uh, another alternative option available, it becomes very difficult for them to uh, do a pushback and sort of resist the Chinese uh, kind of a pressure to uh, work with them on certain connectivity projects. So both in terms of digital as well as physical infrastructure connectivity projects have to become part of the, and not just a talking point in terms of rhetoric, but how much money are you willing to, and what kind of mechanism can you develop? For instance, can you create a public-private partnership, something like the, uh, there have been a couple of models in the US-India context where um, a clean energy project have been looked at and so on and so forth. So so can there be some sort of a public-private partnership where both sides put in enough money, both from the Indian side and the U.S. side, so that there can be a win-win uh, uh, sort of a, because the governments may not have all the money they need. So bring in the private sector, which are also capable uh, players in a sense, to uh, to strengthen the overall uh, capacity in the, con in the in the region of the smaller countries uh, because I think the connectivity is an important one uh, even including digital connectivity especially over the last year and a half countries in the region have gone through several uh, have had to first of all jump into the whole digital revolution that is taking place in the in the backdrop of the pandemic and how well are they suit how well are they sort of uh, capable or how well are they able to sort of adjust to the new realities and so what kind of uh, what kind of technologies can you uh, can you uh, transfer? Can you give these countries? Can you give access to? And what kind of uh, systems have worked? Digital payments and kind of things. So India, for instance, has been trying to uh, so partner with some of the countries in the Indo-Pacific region, Southeast Asia in particular, uh, to sort of. Uh, to at least tell them as to what are the kind of different models and examples, in the, whether it is in terms of the digital health sector uh, to deal with the effect of the pandemic and kind of thing. So I think connectivity has to be both infrastructure, physical border uh, infrastructure connectivity, but also the digital connectivity offers you know, uh, enormous opportunities, uh, but not something that has seen enormous funds that come with it without the um, economic power. Uh, these things will remain uh, sort of a, much of a talk and in terms of rhetoric. So I think that's where we need to improve upon. Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with all that. Clearly, our um, shared comparative advantage is on things like digital connectivity, smart cities initiatives, um, perhaps some aspects of, of green energy transformations, although on, on a lot of that, including solar, China clearly has speed. Uh, we should invest in all of that. Our biggest problem remains our lack of both the U.S. and India's lack of real alternatives on physical infrastructure. Neither of us do this very well. Um, you know, India's Act East policy has not resulted in any major infrastructure projects. There's been, you know, the Sitway Port in Myanmar and, and the highway from the northeast are still not built. The U.S. does know better. And Japan has been saving both of us on this front, right? The only alternative to Chinese infrastructure in most of South and Southeast Asia is Japanese. And we can't expect Japanese state funding to keep up with China forever. So we need to help Tokyo on this front. 
we don't have the state capacity on either of the people, nor do we have the kind of the tradition in either Delhi or Washington of doing this the way the Japanese do. So we do need to incentivize private companies to provide alternatives. And the other place where we can clearly come together in efforts like the Quad, and I hope that'll be a focus of, of the um, infrastructure working group, is on standard setting. Right? Provide uh, agreed upon good, you know, best practices that. Uh, recipient countries in South and Southeast Asia can take and say, okay, even if it's a Chinese project, here are the international uh, standards that we expect it to meet. And that'll help us. I mean, we should be honest. Countries are going to take Chinese capital. It would be insane for them not to. Uh, And not all Chinese investment is bad. Chinese investment that comes with no competition is bad. But when Chinese companies are forced to compete on an even playing field with other competitors and under global standards, then Chinese capital can be a net benefit for recipient countries. Thank you uh, for both of your remarks. Uh, now I'll open up the uh, discussion for the participants to ask questions. Uh, the first question comes from uh, Mr. K.V. Thomas, who's a senior scholar affiliated with uh, CPPR. Uh, he asks, uh, in the changing geopolitical scenario, when economy plays a key role, how effectively does the U.S. play the leadership role in building up critical deterrence against Chinese designs to ensure hegemony in the Indo-Pacific region? Thank you for the question. I mean, I, I honestly think that the answer is that the U.S. can't um, do any of this by itself. And that's that's been difficult for the United States to accept, as we saw clearly under the last administration here. But the U.S., we, we live in a multipolar world in which China is now a pure competitor and has significant and I would argue unbridgeable advantages on certain fronts, including in the ability to provide state capital to strategically and politically important economic projects throughout the region. China is far more able to leverage its, its economic heft for political benefit than the U.S. or any of its allies. The only way that like-minded states can hope to leverage China into better behavior, deter Chinese aggression, and build up the resiliency of smaller neighbors is together in in grand coalitions. And they don't have to be formalized through some kind of Asian NATO, but they do have to be a tight network of, I think, you know, trilateral, quadrilateral, multilateral issue-specific initiatives um, on on infrastructure, on investment, on maritime security, on cybersecurity, and and on and on and on. The goal should be to wrap the region so tightly in coalitions of the willing on like-minded issues that China finds that it is better off working within those systems than without it. Moving to the next question from Asha. Uh, She asks you, According to you, do you see a stronger engagement of the U.S. in the Asia-Pacific, Indo-Pacific under the Biden administration, or do you see a continuation of a hands-off approach of uh, former President Trump? Will we see the U.S. engage in TPP? Um, Those are two different questions. (laughs) TPP is the easy one. No, no, the U.S. is not going to rejoin TPP under the Biden administration. Um, And the Biden administration, I I think that's a terrible decision for the record. And I think every strategic thinker in Washington thinks that's a terrible decision, but I will give them credit. They've at least been honest about it. Every single time they've asked, they've said there's no way that the U.S. is rejoining TPP. There's no way that the U.S. is going to negotiate any comprehensive trade agreement under the Biden administration. The best we might get 
is something on a specific sector is probably digital trade. And even that is going to be very, very difficult. So the Achilles heel for this administration is clearly going to be their lack of trade policy, uh, which is going to be a uh, fundamental factor in this administration and probably for the next administration too, given politics in the US. Um, whether the, the Biden administration is going to engage in Asia more overall, I think the answer is yes. I mean, the Trump, it's not as if the Trump administration didn't engage in Asia. It's frankly, I think the Trump administration engaged in Asia in the wrong way. I mean, we saw significant progress on the bilateral US-India relationship under the Trump administration. Uh, the problem with the Trump administration was that they felt that they could engage in Asia only bilaterally or through a network of bilateral engagements, and they refused to pay the kind of attention to regional architecture that you need. They refused to engage in positive sum diplomacy, so everything really outside the U.S.-India relationship, everything was a zero-sum competition, even with our own allies. Um, what the Biden administration is likely to do is continue the same level of interest and effort in Asia that we've seen building ever since the Obama administration, but do it, I think, more strategically recognizing, as Secretary Austin said in his Singapore speech last month, that the U.S. no longer has the capacity to do this alone, that no country can do it alone, and that the only way the U.S. can compete with China is by having a close-knit network of allies and partners that amplify U.S. capabilities. See, I, perhaps the way to think about this at this point is that the U.S. may be indispensable to any counter-China coalition, but it must be done in a coalition, right? The U.S. is insufficient to the task on almost every front. The next question is, do you think that India's territorial security is related to developments in the Indo-Pacific? If yes, how? Yes, I think that when we see, so I'll just speak I, I, about the China-India angle of this. I think when we see Chinese revisionism, bad behavior, China rewriting historical status quo, whether it is in the Himalayas or in the South China Sea or in the Taiwan Strait, it is indicative of the same mentality that has been amplified under the Xi administration since 2013, and that must be pushed back on. Right? We, none of us can afford to try to deal just with our piece of this. Right? You cannot try to hold China to rules-based order and good behavior in the South China Sea and ignore what they do on the black. You cannot. Uh, try to push back on their gray zone coercion against Taiwan and ignore what they do in the South China Sea. You must either draw a line that says this behavior is unacceptable across the board, or you will accept that China will slowly eat away at our coalitions one by one until it gets what it wants. The next question is, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Poling, we're getting a lot of questions on the Quad. So uh, one question to you on that would be, do you see South Korea joining the Quad? The Democratic administration's language to describe the ROK includes this phrase, the linchpin of stability and prosperity in the Indo-Pacific. So at the moment, the administration isn't exactly saying that it will happen due to uh, differences with uh, between Japan and ROK. So are these significant enough to keep South Korea out, out of the Quad for the long term? I don't think we're likely to see any formal expansion of the Quad. I mean, for one thing, we haven't even institutionalized the Quad itself, and Delhi's quite clear that it's not comfortable with the idea of institutionalizing the Quad. So, um, you know, I think the the, the Quad, <laughs> the Quad right now is 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 kind of in the quantum realm. You can't actually look at it too hard or try to measure it, or it disappears. So, the Quad only works if it's informal, and we all choose not to talk about what exactly it means.
What we are likely to see is that specific quad-based initiatives, probably right now focused on the three areas established by the working groups, maritime security, uh, infrastructure investment, and global health, that we'll see coalitions of like-minded states jumping onto those efforts. And so if there is a, if in the fall we announce a, a, a quad effort on investment, you know, infrastructure investment or, or green energy or whatever, then you can imagine that like-minded states, including Korea, would want to be part of that. So on maritime security, I would imagine the Vietnamese would want to be part of that. The Koreans might not. Uh, and so the, the quad, I think, becomes the core of a network of very loosely institutionalized lines of effort on different issues. And everybody will find something they like about it and can avoid the stuff that they find to be too sensitive. This is from DS Murugan Yadav. And uh, he asks, so what is your take on the role of islands in the Indo-Pacific region to enhance the US-India cooperation, particularly when it comes to countering the Chinese presence in the region? I wish that um, my, my friend Arshana Barua was here to, to answer this question since, since she's the expert here in Washington now on uh, islands in the Indian Ocean. Uh, I mean, I guess channeling her as best I can, I would say that Island, you know, geography is what it is, I mean, whether it's in the 21st century or, or the 20th or the 19th century, presence matters and securing access points on far-flung island territories, both in the Indian Ocean and Pacific, uh, is key to monitoring and being able to deter Chinese bad behavior, um, particularly in a world in which islands often have outsized legal and diplomatic influence given the rules established by UNCLOS. And so, you know, uh, networking the, you know, Indian access and the Anman and Icabar with U.S. access and Diego Garcia and French access and Reunion allows us a network to monitor and respond to activities in the Indian Ocean that we would be utterly incapable of doing from the coasts. Thank you, Mr. Gregory Pauling, for those uh, succinct remarks. They've been quite comprehensive, and I think you enlightened on a variety of issues, not only on the security strategic aspects, but also in terms of connectivity, in terms of infrastructure. And it was great having you on this panel, and uh, best wishes in all your endeavors. God bless. Thank you all, and I'm so sorry I have to run, but this has been a fantastic panel. Let's move to the questions for uh, Dr. Raji now. Mr. K.V. Thomas asks, so he has a question on the changing profile of maritime security in the light of uh, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the fluid political situation there. So how would India use uh, the maritime route from Kandla to Chabahar port if the new political disposition blocks the land route? Keeping apart China, what will be the likely standoff the U.S., Russia, and Iran would have in the context in this context from the maritime angle. Yeah, that's a terrific question, and in fact, I think this has been in the minds of a lot of. Uh, this has been part of a lot of conversation. There's a lot of chatter about uh, post uh, Afghanistan uh, uh, exit of the United States. What happens really, and especially the pace at which uh, Kabul ha has uh, fell in the hands of the of the Taliban, I don't think the pace had been really, um, we, we did not really anticipate it had to happen this quickly, maybe a couple of months from now. But the, but the way things have unraveled in Kabul has really uh, opened up. But I think there have also been some questions overall on the, on the uh, where does the US stand in terms of, I think there has been some sort of a 
so where does the US stand in terms of its credibility? Is, are there questions of that? And does that really implicate the dynamics in the Indo-Pacific? To me, I think uh, it, it would have, uh, I don't think it would have a lot of uh, uh, negative impact on the Indo-Pacific, overall Indo-Pacific strategic dynamics, uh, the strategy itself or the framework that we are working together um, and, uh, on the major participation uh, for a couple of different reasons. One, I, I'm not suggesting that uh, the whatever happening in Afghanistan is not important. It is very distressing what's going, going on. But at the same time, we should not be losing sight of the important issues that have brought the uh, U.S. and India, as well as the other major Indo-Pacific powers on the same page, which is China and ensuring uh, a rules-based order and so on and so forth, freedom of, freedom of navigation, free and open Indo-Pacific. Um, and so those issues should not be uh, sort of, a, in a sense, confused and we should not lose sight of them. But in terms of given the reality in, in Afghanistan, how does it uh, affect the Chabahar port, uh, I, you know, it's it just been something that has been going on for a very, very long time. Uh, we have seen some progress, then uh, I think we take two steps forward, four steps backward and kind of thing. We have, uh, you know, gone through several ups and downs with the whole Chabahar port and uh, how we might be able to uh, uh, transport uh, uh, stuff from uh, from the Central Asian region and so on and so forth. I think there have been questions about it, but uh, I, yeah, of course, if the, the land route is going to be possibly blocked and I think there are going to be problems. Uh, but in terms of keeping apart China, what the stand of US, Russia, Iran in the context of maritime angle, I think uh, I have a slightly different take in a sense, for instance. Uh, I think uh, Russia in recent times have been far closer to China to, uh, uh, you know, it makes India a little uh, uncomfortable about it, especially from a national, I'm not talking from an emotional perspective, but Russia used to be a traditionally a close friend of India, close partner within of India, but at the same time, uh, especially since the uh, uh, developments in Ukraine in 2013-14, uh, the kind of strategic equations between Russia and China have changed significantly. So uh, I am uh, today Russia needs China a lot more than anybody else. Not uh, so they don't really care about the India partnership, uh, how much, uh, how important that is, and so on and so forth. So I'm just looking at it from a very national security and practical, pragmatic perspective. And to me, in that sense, uh, it is the U.S. and uh, it is U.S. as well as other Indo-Pacific powers, France. These are the important powers uh, that we need to be concerned about and with whom we are actually building the maritime security collaborations in a sense, uh, strengthening the collab uh, maritime as well as other um, sort of larger, broader cooperation agenda in a sense. So those are uh, important for us. So Dr. Raji, the next question to you is from Arun Kumar and he asks that despite moving towards strengthening the Indian maritime security, is India focusing less on space security, which also actually helps in reinforcing maritime security? That's a good question because uh, I say still no, because I think uh, even as we talk about as to how the Indian Navy should get a better share of the defense budget, um, should uh, see a larger focus in terms of, because Navy is a capital intensive and it takes time to build your capabilities. So uh, if you invest today, you're not going to see the returns tomorrow or even next year and kind of thing. It takes about, uh, about a decade before you see the equipment capabilities out in the uh, out in the uh, in operation so uh, it's something that we need to invest in but having said that even the indian navy has been uh, feeling the crunch in terms of the uh, of, uh, funds being allocated to them that's one set of issues second on the space security i would not say that 
uh, we are ignoring space security and kind of focusing less on it. But at the same time, uh, more than anything else, the COVID-19 pandemic has had a huge impact on the Indian launch capabilities. Uh, the number of launches that have happened over the last couple of years, when you look at it, it's uh, it's been uh, pretty pretty low. We had moved up from somewhere between you know nine satellites uh, launches, uh, nine launches in a year on an average, to somewhere around fifteen uh, a few a few years ago. Uh, but now we seem to have gone very badly in terms of the number of launches we have been able to. And I think last year we just had two launches. This year again we had just two launches, and the last one was not a successful. There were some technical glitches. So in terms of the manufacturing of the satellites as well as the launch capability, we have stepped back. Uh, but in terms of the space security per se, I would say that the growing demands, uh, there is a capacity deficit within the ISRO. Uh, the ISRO has not been able to meet all of India's growing space uh, demands, whether it is the communication requirements, whether it is the you know, tele-education, tele, um, uh, tele-education, tele-medicine kind of requirements, or you're talking about the military, Indian military requirements, the naval, uh, naval communication. We have a one satellite, dedicated satellite, but we... Uh, the satellites for, um, for other armed forces like the army and the air force are still pending. So there are there have been growing demands and the ISRO has not been able to keep up with the growing demands. And I think that's where uh, we need to talk about. And uh, the government has made some announcements last year about involving the private sector in India's space story, space growth trajectory in a sense. If we want to be, uh, if we want to stay competitive and address the growing uh, requirements of space capabilities and so on and so forth, we have to bring in the private sector as an independent stakeholder who's also able to deliver in terms of both manufacturing as well as launch capabilities. But uh, the government made a few announcements. Last year, financial, the Finance Minister, Mr. Nirmala Sitaraman, made their statements, announcements, but it has to be followed up by appropriate regulatory and policy framework. Only then can it become a reality. So in a sense, there have been announcements, but these are, unless we see some regulatory framework uh, changes and kind of thing, uh, you know, our space, secure, our space competitiveness could be affected in the long run. In the, in the near term as well. Dr. Raji, I think I'm going to ask you the same question uh, that I posed to Ms. Mr. Polling about, uh, you know, the islands. So a slightly differently worded question. So uh, do you think there is a need for India to rethink a new island strategy in the Indo-Pacific in order to commit its position as the net security provider of the region? How can the role of islands, uh, you know, help India in the move in this in the area to counter the chinese presence yeah absolutely i am not an islands uh, uh, like i said uh, there is uh, greg said uh, darshana barwa she has been focusing specifically on the uh, indian ocean islands uh, in a sense and how islands fit into the overall uh, framework or strategies of India, US, and other major maritime powers, in a sense. Uh, but I think the importance of the islands cannot be uh, ignored because I think they have also been now increasingly getting caught in the great power, major power competition between uh, the US, China, and maybe even India, Australia, and so on and so forth. So at the same time, providing them with effective alternatives, capacities, uh, capability development, capacity development for these island countries is also something that is very important. The capacity development in, in particular for these countries are in the in terms of the environmental uh, disasters, climate change related disasters and kind of thing. So how well, how adaptive they are and how capable they are in terms of 
uh, addressing some of these challenges become uh, critical. And so uh, sort of uh, giving them assistance in the areas where they um, uh, need them the most, I think that's something that we need to uh, pay attention to. What is it that island countries require and give them that rather than just come up with our own package and trying to impose on them in a sense. Uh, so that's not particularly helpful. But at the same time, I think uh, reaching out to them uh, getting theirs in a sense of what is the, what are the kind of different requirements that they have, and I think we have been uh, we have been stepping up our uh, certainly over the last uh, five six years we have stepped up our approach to uh, island nations uh, in the Indo-Pacific waters and this in the maritime spaces, uh, but I think that needs to be uh, that needs to go forward in terms of uh, continued collaboration and capacity building. Coming to a slightly different uh, question. So how far is uh, PPP or private investment advisable in strategic areas when you look at the security side of it? How far can it be foolproof in the digi digital world today? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think the private sector, the use of private sector is a new reality that we need to come to terms with, whether it is in the defense sector, whether it is in the space sector. And even nuclear, we have not really opened up the nuclear sector to the private uh, party's asset. And the private sector is also uh, extremely wary of uh, investing in India's uh, domestic nuclear sector, uh, nuclear energy sector, civil nuclear energy sector, for instance, uh, primarily because of the, um, the uh, what do you call it, the liability act that we have in place. But having said that, uh, in terms of uh, the private sector participation in areas like the defense, uh, or space, we are becoming much more open to that. We have in increased their uh, uh, proportion of uh, proportion proportionally. When you look at it, we have strengthened the uh, possible role of the uh, private sector in, in each of these sectors. And you can come up with appropriate, like I said, appropriate regulatory framework is the key here. And uh, so instead of denying or giving a blanket, saying a, having a blanket denial and saying we will not engage with the private sector, which is not a very useful thing. Uh, look at other countries how they have dealt with the private sector and how the private sector has been an ingredient uh, sort of in uh, an important uh, stakeholder in developing their national capabilities including in the strategic domain in a sense so uh, i think we need to come up with appropriate policy and regulatory framework so that uh, they can contribute to india's uh, you know uh, strategic sectors as well uh, but at the same time without us losing you know uh, losing any um, having any loss in the in, the, in these key sectors. Sanchita Chavla asks a very interesting question and a long one there. But speaking from a comprehensive perspective and also uh, depending on your engagement uh, in with the subject, is it maritime security, be it in the IOR, in the Indo-Pacific or the South China Sea, isn't it a multi-layered issue? Alternatively speaking, doesn't the maritime environment depend on, upon a lot of other environmental issues, uh, other other issues, but especially outer space in terms of radar, surveillance satellites and other systems. So therefore, in, to look at it in a proactive way, do states not need to take a holistic approach given the aggressive Chinese developments in space as well? So how can other arenas of conflict, competition, and collaboration be brought into the picture to facilitate policy goals in the Indo-Pacific and the IOR? Yeah, terrific uh, question. And I would, if I have to say it in, uh, in one line, I would say we need investment, uh, significant investment, uh, hike in the budget uh, allocation to all of these different sectors, whether it is space, whether it is uh, cyber, uh, or uh, other types of electronic warfare. 
um, maritime, everything, all of this needs significant. But at the same time, we have a relatively a small kitty in a sense available and how much money can be then. Uh, so what are the priorities um, uh, that Indian, uh, India has to focus on? Uh, which are the priority areas that India has to focus on and uh, how much, you know, it's also depends, for instance, when it comes to the Navy, uh, you might want to make some significant investment today because the return is not, it's the, development of the particular technology will not happen overnight. So you might want to make the investment today so that we have the technology ready at least in another 10 years time. Uh, but at the same time, so the, there is a huge uh, technology lag when it comes to whether in terms of space, uh, uh, space, maritime and all of that. And look at the kind of maritime spaces, for instance, the Chinese ability to uh, do serial production of submarines. The submarines may not be the top line. They may be still very noisy diesel submarines and so on and so forth. But the fact is that they have the indigenous capacity, capability to develop on a serial, to engage in a serial production of the submarines. Our numbers are like uh, somewhere around 15. Uh, they have close to 70 um, sat, um, submarines in a sense. On, on any number of issues, or the pace at which China is developing the aircraft carrier program, um, and how they have come about with that, again, is, is fairly astonishing, uh, the manner in which they have come about and the pace at which they are developing. So it's fairly um, sort of a significant in a sense. Uh, space, again, uh, they have also embraced, China has also embraced the private sector as a major actor in stepping up the overall space competitiveness of China. Um, so China has been able to make sure that, you know, they get all the different stakeholders, not just the state to play and state organization to play a role, state institutions, but also bring in the private sector as a key player so that their competitiveness is, uh, is, for, is one step ahead. Uh, and they're, of course, uh, looking ahead in terms of competing with the U.S. Their, uh, their level of competition is with the U.S. So obviously their level of sophistication is also that much higher and so on and so forth. So we significantly need... Um, significant allocation important allocation to be made in our different sectors but at the same time in the in the post uh, covid um, pandemic uh, era i think this is going to be extremely difficult given the economic impact of the covid pandemic and how the economies have already shrunk so much and it will take a couple of years at the very least uh, before we recover uh, because this also means that our uh, uh, the allocations for the space or defense, all of this is going to be uh, further reduced in the in the budget. So our capacities are going to be um, the material capacity is very very significant if we have to be able to affect any changes on any domain, and I think we are going to be limited because of the economic impact of the pandemic for sure. Dr. Raji, I think uh, I'll probably pose the last question to you for today. Uh, the same thing that I asked Mr. Poling about, uh, you know, there is an increased uh, curiosity about the role of Quad and whether Quad would be institutionalized, whether it would be expanded to include countries like South Korea. Um, how can uh, India play a significant role as part of the Quad? Would you like to answer that? Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a that's an important question, especially if you talk about the uh, Indo-Pacific uh, uh, strategic engagements and kind of things. Squad is one of the most uh, concrete uh, agenda that has come to see. Uh, the fact is that you had a quad. The first avatar of the quad happened in two thousand seven. It withered away for a number of different reasons. 
But the fact that a decade later, the Quad took a second avatar and came back clearly shows that the threats and challenges that brought the first Quad is still alive. Not only still alive, it has intensified or magnified in many terms that there is a willingness on the part of even countries like India to go embrace the uh, Quad as an important uh, initiative to, uh, to take forward in terms of ensuring a free and open Indo-Pacific. Uh, and whether there is a possibility of a Quad Plus, uh, including countries like the um, so, so like South Korea. So there is a Quad Plus initiative that is being going on mostly in the, in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, talking about vaccine diplomacy and uh, post-pandemic post, post recovery, economic recovery and so on and so forth. But in my view, I think there is a there's a likelihood that this grouping, this particular grouping, including countries like South Korea, Vietnam, and New Zealand, which is part of the COVID-19, uh, sorry, uh, Quad Plus initiative, uh, they could become part of, a, and this grouping could become part of a sort of a larger strategic, uh, sort of a uh, grouping with a strategic intent in a sense, uh, in a post-COVID scenario. So I think the uh, the quad expansion is a possibility. I'm not saying that it's going to happen tomorrow, but I think there are. And the quad itself is a, it's just a name. It just means four countries, but it, you could have a, any number of minilaterals that could take shape and uh, that could kind of, uh, uh, you know, bring together a number of different countries, like-minded partners to work together to ensure a rules-based order to ensure that free and open Indo and to ensure a free and open and inclusive Indo-Pacific order uh, that emerges. And again, uh, we when we look at the overall uh, uh, goals of these engagements, this is not about containment of China because containment of China is, a, I think that's a, a ship that has sailed long time ago. We are talking about how do you manage China? How do you ensure a China that plays by the rules of the road, by who respects international law, who uses dialogue and negotiation instead of military and muscle power as the first uh, first resort to resolve border and territorial issues or sovereignty related issues. So how do you get to uh, manage China is the key question. And for that, I think any number of uh, coalitions and uh, minilaterals uh, kind of groupings will come about uh, in the coming years because I don't see a China that is uh, becoming a more accommodative or a benign power in the near future. Thank you, Raji, for the extensive remarks that have been concise as well as comprehensive. Uh, it covered a, a vast uh, swath of issues uh, in the Indo-Pacific that not only range from the Indo-US uh, dyad, but also in terms of the various permutation combinations of, uh, of strategic change. And the research to come has been widely covered by both of you. Uh, I have nothing to more to say because for much of what I wanted to ask and transact has already been done there. With that, uh, let me uh, thank uh, the panelists, uh, Dr. Raji Rajagopalan and Mr. Pauling, uh, for this uh, excellent uh, comments that they made on the panel, and for all others who had asked questions. And thank you, and God bless. Thank you, Dr. Lawrence, and a big thank you to you as well for uh, moderating this uh, uh, webinar so beautifully. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Rajgopalan, for uh, you know your comments and your uh, insights mm -hmm. today. And thank you to Mr. Pauling as well, who. Uh, Left, uh, left us to uh, for his next engagement a few uh, minutes ago. I'd also like to thank our co-hosts and partners, the United States Consulate General Chennai team for their support, Consul General Raven, Ms. Anne Lee Sheshadri, the Public Affairs Officer, Biju Kumar, Chitra, Sujata, Susi Nirmala, and Dipti. Also in absentia, Morlik Barkana, who was involved in the initial stages of this project. A thank you to our organizing team at CPPR, 
team lead Angela, Joseph, Sri Arvind, and Rajesh, who were responsible for pulling today's event together, to Paul for the coordination and guidance, and to our chairman, Dr. Deed Hanuraj, for conceptualizing and guiding this project. You can find all the information related to this discussion series and CPPR's research areas on our website, www.cppr.in, and our social media accounts. With this, I'd like to formally close today's proceedings. We at the Center for Public Policy Research hope to see you again in October for the next discussion of the series on trade relations between the US and India. Good evening and goodbye.